back to another episode of Discover Ag brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I am Tara Vanderdusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics every single week in the ag and food space so that you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. On today's episode, we are not only covering the top three articles this week, but we also have an incredible interview at the end of this episode with Ben Spell, the CEO of Good Ranchers, one of our favorite sponsors, our favorite meat delivery company. So stick around for the end of this episode because it is going to be such a good one. I know I'm personally really excited to talk with him about all things Good Ranchers, how he started the company and you know why delivering American meat to people is so important. Yeah, we're also going to dive into a little bit of lab grow meat, get his opinions on that. Um, I know something that Ben and the Good Ranchers are very passionate also is cool, country of origin label. So if you fall in that camp um, or have questions about that, um, it'll be a really good article or interview. Sorry, I'm so used to saying article. It'll be a really good interview to tune in. So like Tara said, it'll be after our three articles. So make sure you um, stick for the entire episode, you guys. I have a funny story for you. Okay, let's hear it. I've actually refrained from telling it to you too, so you could um, hear it live with the discos. But school started up this last week, um, which means that football also started up for Tad. And so last Friday, they had their football scrimmage, you know, where it's like, used to be called red and white for us because it's like the same team. They call it Gatorade scrimmage because you have to bring Gatorade as your admission. But one of the fun things they do that they started our football, because we're kind of like a football community, they have senior moms get to put on pads and a helmet and tackle their senior sons. And so Friday night, (laughs) your girl, your host, uh, your co-host padded up and uh, tackled Tat. And I have to tell you, I felt, I felt like I did a good job. And then I watched (laughs) the video that Luke took of it. (laughs) And I think I have never been more embarrassed of myself in my entire life. Please, 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 please tell me that we get to share the video at the discos. I'm going to um, summon up the gumption to try and post it to stories on Thursday, you guys. I really am. I think it's going to take a pep talk from Tara that morning. So this one's on her to get me to hit the share button. But I have it on my phone. I did not delete it. And I'll share it with you guys. It looks like the video's in slow motion, but it's not. <laughs> I am going at full speed. It's just, I feel like people are going to question me. They're going to be like, I thought, thought Natalie could walk and run and do normal, normal activities. And now we're fully aware she can't. And we have to take everything she says of the podcast for concern now and question it all because we're not entirely sure she can function as a normal human being. I am just, I cannot stop thinking about what this looks like. I also just think that's hysterical. Like what did Tad think? Was Tad okay? Like how did he feel about Yeah, tackle? we tackled him into like a high jump mat. And they were obviously still like in their pads because we did it right after the scrimmage. Um, they were so stinky and the helmets and the pads we had to put on this also oh. were very stinky. But it was really funny. The senior boys loved it. And it was funny to see like the different moms tackle their sons. Um, one mom laid out her son. It was insane. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a really it's very it was very funny. It was a lot of fun. You've had such a big week this week, I feel like between Jack's first day of kindergarten and Tad's first day of his senior year, like big, big things happening over there. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, I always talk about how I'm in such different 
parts of parenting. And I think it's very evident this year with, like you said, Jack starting kindergarten and I'm packing school lunches again in the morning, which I have not done forever. And then on the same footnote, we're like looking at college applications for Tad and doing like end of things, you know, like the last time I'll get to walk out on the field with him next week is senior mom's night, you know, or parents night. And so it's very bizarre. I feel like I'm in two very different worlds right now. And then there's yeah, Rue, like toddling along Rue's behind it all. <laughs> yeah, don't forget about me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story to tell you from my weekend. Daniel and I feel like we got away with murder this weekend, basically. Uh, so we decided to host a Sunday brunch for our families. And we like tell Daniel's brother and his spouse and they're like, hey, we're going to bring these really fancy cinnamon rolls. Then we tell his mom and she's like, okay, I'm going to bring like a sausage, mushroom, casserole. We tell my mom and she's like, okay, I'm bringing um, a quiche. And Daniel and I look at each other. We're like, what do we make? Like, feels like a full meal. So we literally cooked bacon and put together a fruit platter. My mom even brought Bloody Marys. Like it literally, Daniel and I were like, we just hosted a party and we didn't, we made bacon. Like that was the easiest thing ever. And I mean, we hit the cleanup, but I was like, and I realized this is basically what a potluck is, but I still was like, this is genius. Just invite people over to your house and have them each bring something. First off, was it Good Ranchers bacon? Oh, heck yes. Of course it was. So I got them in my last uh, order. I hadn't had the bacon before. I will never be able to have another brand of bacon again. I don't know what they put in that I bacon. I told you. It is insanely good. The second thing is that's actually how Luke um, and his friend circle does it. Whoever hosts doesn't have to make any food or oh, bring any food or do idea. anything. Because we did have cleanup. Like there was stuff to do, you know, but we, it was like really easy. I feel like it was probably as easy as bringing a single dish to someone's house. What mm-hmm. we had left over, we just like cleaned up. But, you know, and one note on the Good Ranchers bacon. I know this is like a side story, but I think it's because it's so thick cut too. like I feel like sometimes grocery store bacon, like when you're just buying it in the package, they really skimp you on like the slices and Good Ranchers Skimpers. does not skimp on the slices. We don't like a skimper on Discover no, Egg. No skimp zone. Mm-mm. Nah, no bacon skimp not zone. happening here. Oh, um, should we move into discovery of the week though for the word? Because I feel like we have a jam-packed episode between all the articles and the interview. We do, we do. What's our word okay. of the week? Well, the word of the week was chosen because of our third article and it is sidle. It's a verb to move in a sneaky manner. Nate sidled towards the dessert table, trying to grab a third slice of cake without being noticed. Sidle? Sidle. Hmm. Interesting. That's going to be hard to use if I'm being honest. Really? Yeah, I don't know. Sidle. Natalie's Here's playing the, it for us. Uh huh. Sidle. 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 Okay, we got it. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> the fourth time was the charm on that one. <laughs> I didn't want to skip. Uh- Okay, before we get into the articles, we do want to thank our sponsor, Case IH. So this episode, as always, is brought to you by Case IH. The men and women at Case IH Farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit BuiltByFarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. Um, moving into our first article this week, you guys, I'm a little bummed because whoa, we don't whoa. have... Whoa, whoa. You didn't even take a moment, Natalie. I can't appreciate. see. You're you blurry. You can see me? Oh, man. I know. Now that you said it, though, I, I see you have a beautiful case. Um, Tumblr. Th- yeah, Tumblr. 
because I'm headed to the case creator experience on Monday. So follow along in our stories. It's going to be amazing. I'm definitely going to bring my case tumbler. I got a cool hat. You order case IH red shirt at my request? I case IH red shirt. I'm ready for next week farm progress. So you guys join along with us. We're going to be hanging out with our sponsor case and our sponsor also um, propane. So we have a lot going on next week. Yeah, I'm really bummed I could not make the Monday case event work for my schedule, but I will be joining Tara on Tuesday, you guys, um, for the rest of the farm progress. So like she said, catch us in action over there. So first up in the world of ag that you guys need to know this week, title Girl Dinner Broke the Internet. Here's what nutritionists think about it. A sort of choosing your own adventure tasting platter, Girl Dinner can include anything and often includes everything. From applesauce and salami to Cheetos and guacamole. This trend has amassed nearly 1 billion views on TikTok where users have started sharing their own smorgasbord creations. That's a fun word. Um, But food experts weigh in on the potential merits and pitfalls of this low effort snack forward meal and what it reveals about our relationship to food and each other. I feel like I have been seeing this trend all summer and it's kind of funny to me that it's a trend because I don't know about you. But when Daniel is out of town, the girls and I's different dinner looks very different. Like I for sure girl dinner when Dan's out of town. I'm totally team pro girl dinner. I think it is the essence of quick, convenient, and hassle-free. And it is also what I do when I do not have to feed Luke or Tad. Um, and even sometimes <laughs> Tad like doesn't mind getting in on like a little girl dinner, I don't think, like when it's just variety, assortment. Popcorn is usually one of my go-to girl dinner like included um, elements, food elements. Um, So yeah, I totally do it. It's this article kind of got into that, that, you know, women typically are like the caretakers, the one planning the meals. And so if you can like, I don't know, it's like an escape from that for one night to just be like, it is low key. It's easy. It's all your favorite foods. And honestly, the, the, the conversation about the pros and cons of it from the dietitians, the registered dietitians, it was not all bad. Some of them were like, it's a healthy mix of like fruits, vegetables, carbs, meats. Like as long as you're getting a variety, it doesn't really matter how many different things there are on your plate. Yeah. Before we dive into that part of it, going back to what you said, I thought it was really interesting. The girl who founded it or started it, it was back in May, which is why it has been trending <laughs> all summer long and it's still trending. Like if you Google girl dinner right now, Bon Appetit, CBS, Food and Wine, Women Health, National Geographic, all riding on this within just the last couple of days. But she was quoted as saying, there was this feeling of, oh my gosh, I am not the only one. I love anything that celebrates something women are all doing, but we don't know that we're all doing it. And I was like, if that is not the epitome of virality. um, But yeah, I think that's what's so fun about it is too, is like, I do girl dinner. You know, like I do it too. I actually thought it was funny that this article was from National Geographic. It might be our first ever article from National Geographic. So it seems kind of, I don't know, just random that that's where, who was talking about it. Like out of of all the things National Geographic talks about, girl dinner doesn't seem high on that list, but it is everywhere. And I agree with the like being viral thing. Actually, whenever I give my like uh, keynote speech, I always say, if you think you do something unique, post it on the internet. And I promise 20 people respond to you and tell you how they do it the exact same thing. Yeah. And going back to the viral movement, um, they're talking about basically how scale attracts scrutiny, which could not be further from the wait. No, that's not what I want to say. Could not be closer than the truth. I was going to say it could not be further from the truth, but that's not true because it's true. <laughs> So you're telling us a true statement. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. The problem, going back to the dietitians, is that 
um, I guess some of the examples that are being shown are a little bit more extreme than others or could be grouped under that. And so they're spark saying that it's sparking concern that the trend could encourage disorders eating. One of their quote was girl dinner, more like girl, please go to the doctor. You have an ED wrote someone on TikTok, which I just, I think my big takeaway from this is actually why does everything have to turn into something? You know, like why can't girl dinner just stay where it is without the internet and people turning it into something to dissect and overanalyze, you know, like someone could post one meal and then you, I mean, I think that comment is really offensive. Like, please go to the doctor. You have an ED, you know, for one, it's offensive to people who truly do. And then it's offensive if you don't like you're analyzing someone off of one meal and then making a very bold statement about it, which again is just the internet. But I'm actually annoyed that people are like dissecting it and we're having to like have experts, dietitians weigh in on like whether girl dinner should be approved or not. Yeah. And I feel like if it's like a once in a while thing, it's fine. One of my favorite quotes from this was, I get to do what I want in the moment and I don't have to be thinking about anyone else, about my family or anybody. It's a celebration of freedom that like it is that it's your like night off kind of as momming maybe or as, you know, being the woman in the household that maybe is doing some of the cooking. And I, and I was like, that's what this was about. Why can't we keep it as that? Like that it was like just you get to do a little bit of what you want to do in the moment. And there was a lot of like, I liked the benefit side of it that like having a light meal for dinner can be really good. And that like a lot of studies are showing like intuitive eating um, can have really positive physical and mental health benefits that we're not so focused on every single bite we're putting in our mouth. Uh, and so I, I personally loved all the positives versus like you said, kind of like the negative towards this trend. I think one thing that stood out to me from an angle of it was that it's perfect for summer heat, which I feel like I only girl dinner mostly in the summer, like the warmer months. I don't know. It's like I eat lighter in the summer when, I mean, we're, you guys were in the midst of a heat wave right now. And at any moment I could shrivel into a raisin and just die of heat exhaustion and stroke. So everyone be concerned with me this week, but I definitely don't girl dinner as much in the winter. Like in the winter, I do crave like a hearty whole meal, but something about the summer when Luke's not home, I'm hundred percent girl dinner. Yeah. I think we're team girl dinner. I'll be interested um, to know where this goes. We always love hearing where you guys fall on the spectrum of, of our topics. So let us know. And if you're doing girl dinner, take us. All right. Our second article is brought to you guys today by a very new sponsor, Morning Ag Clips. They are an online website that is covering lots of articles in the ag and food space. And so this next article is actually from their website. And we are over the next few months going to be pulling articles from their website occasionally to bring to you guys. Um, and I highly recommend checking out their site, Morning Ag Clips. They are really covering a variety of topics that I know I personally found a lot of interest in. Yeah, I was excited about the sponsorship because we had covered them before. And we just kept actually, there's a couple of discos that always send us, I think they subscribe and um, like, um, obviously read their information. And so yeah, they're definitely I think they do a really good job covering a variety if you're looking for maybe very ag focused, um, you know, things that are happening on the market, like kind of very specific, but very also broad scope, which is kind of what we look for too. So I do think there's a little bit of something there for everyone. So if you're looking for another space to get your news, definitely check out Morning Ad Clips. Okay, moving into the second article this week, does an apple a day really keep the doctor away? 
If apples are functional foods that promote health, do they really help keep the doctor away? I just have to say also another plug for them. This was such a well-written article. I thought they linked to so many studies. I was so impressed and I thought it was just a really easy read, like the way they laid it out. So again, another reason to check out Morning Ad Clips, you guys. I have that exact same note. I love how if they made a statement, they literally tagged to the exact peer-reviewed study. It made it so nice. Um, This article, the title, um, it is actually, I feel like, less about apples and more about bioactive substances or compounds in our food, which was fascinating. Yeah. So that was definitely the premise. They discussed and for me actually introduced a new term functional food i had never heard of that had you heard of that? i had never either they said it was introduced in japan uh back in the 80s when the united states was making maybe poor nutrition decisions in the 80s which we'll get into japan was turning to functional medicine and has done amazing things with, or sorry functional foods done amazing things in medicine with functional foods yeah that was part of the reason they turn toward them is because they were starting to adopt our diet and then realized it was not maybe the best. But they have since turned it into the phrase food for specialized health uses. And it is regulated, which I think is really very interesting. So basically, um, they get this label if products can be scientifically shown to promote health. And, and Japan has over a thousand foods and beverages approved as food for specialized health uses right now. There is actually, they interviewed with like, or had quotes from a professor who is actually going to start teaching classes on functional foods that will be similar to them teaching about vitamins and minerals. Um, so I feel like there's some progress that's going to be happening. Like they were saying, it's there's a lot happening in the research space in the United States around functional foods. So exactly what is a functional food? They're saying there's no universal definition of it, but a typical and simple definition is, quote, processed foods having disease preventing and or health promoting benefits in addition to their nutritive, it's a weird word for some reason, value. Um, So they overlap with like nutraceuticals, medical foods, probiotics, designer foods, pharma foods, and phytofoods. And apples fall under this category because like Tara said in the beginning, the bioactive substances they have. I feel like when I was reading through this article, the most well-known like functional food that I didn't know was a functional food is like the beta carotene in carrots. Uh, that is a, like a functional food or a functional or a bioactive compound in carrots that helps you with your vision. But that's definitely the most well-known one, I would say, yep. today. Other ones are lutein, um, zeaxanthin. Ze- I don't know why I got all the hard words for this. And then I crap. left those for you. <laughs> Um, so when you look specifically at the bioactive substances within apples, um, they talked about the natural dietary fibers as one of the bioactive components, um, which, you know, if you go down further down the line, they're talking about reducing the amount of sugar and fat and, um, potentially helping with the risk of risk reduction of diabetes and heart disease. They also talked about that apples contain high amounts of natural chemicals known as polyphenols that have very vital roles in promoting health and reducing chronic disease. So I thought it was really interesting um, that they are essentially saying that is where the saying an apple a day comes or an apple a day keeps the doctor away comes from is these, all these, you know, natural bioactive substances within them that classify it as a functional food. Yeah. I think one of the things that I kind of took out of this though, is like you have like the apple, for example, you have to eat the entire apple, like the peel is part of it. Like it's not, you're not going to get this from an apple juice or an apple sauce. Um, Like the peel has some bioactive compounds that can help reduce your risk of Alzheimer's, which I thought was really cool. So I, I think 
Uh, my like one of my big takeaways from this is when we talk about like lab grown meat, you and I have talked about like, how much do we not even know about all of our food? And we think we can replicate that in a lab. This is exactly that. Like if we think we can grow an apple and it can have all like, because it would be like the meat essentially of the apple, right? Like the inside of the apple would be if you were doing lab grown apples. I don't know why you would, but you know, I don't know why you do lab grown meat either. But we can't replicate all of these things, I don't think down to the science. That was actually my big takeaway picture as well, is that there is so much about food at like a almost a molecular level that we do not know, we have not studied, we don't understand, and we definitely cannot replicate. What's your favorite apple? Um, oh my gosh, that's a good one. I like the gala and I like the honey crisp. Mm, I'm honey crisp. What girl. about you? Honey I crisp thought you girl. were. I think mm-hmm. I knew that. I've bought you apples before at the grocery store and you've gotten honey crisp. I'll pay like seven dollars a pound for apple crisp. <laughs> You know, this is like a side tangent, but there was another article on Morning Ag Clips about apples and that Washington State is like trying a new variety that is going to be a honey crisp mixed with like a pink lady, I think. And it's not coming to a grocery store t- near you till 2029 because <laughs> they have to like grow the trees. Uh, but it sounded really good. It was such a good article. I'm glad you brought that up because I came across it too. It was another Morning Ag Clips article. Um, we should have like a little bell for them. But um, I'm glad you brought it up because I went to WSU. So I want to give my little shout out to the Goku. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was so that. was really fun to see them in the news. They have it was a really good article. I, we almost chose it. I wanted to for almost an, like a separate article to give it its space because I thought it was so fascinating learning about the production of like the different varieties they were talking about. It's called WA64 because it was the 64 Apple to move into the second phase of a three-phase process of selection, which is really hard to do. So I thought it was really fascinating, actually, the whole article. So we're going to link... I want to link that second one in stories, even though we aren't actually covering it today, you guys. Uh, Going back to the original article, the last thing I feel like I want to touch on is it's still crazy to me that in the 1980s, the US government you know, published our first dietary guidelines. And in those guidelines, we encourage people to avoid fats and in- encourage them to be replaced with starchy foods such as bread and pasta. Like, does that, how did someone think replacing whole nutritious foods with processed starchy foods was going to lead us in a good direction? When you think like now knowing like this functional foods and all of these things, it's like, okay, it's cool now that we know all this research, but like, how did we not like intuitively know like whole foods were going to, are better for us? You know, that's like a dangerous slope to slide down is talking about like the origin of the food. Is it still called the pyramid? I think it's been replaced by something else. It's called the plate now. It was the pyramid and now we have the plate. So I don't know. It's just wild to me. I feel like um, I, I do think we are like maybe coming back around from some of that. But I just feel like it takes I mean, we've talked about this before that it takes years, decades for us to like undo something that was done. And um, this article just got me a little fired up about that. So when I was doing my research for this, I came across an article by JAMA, which is a pretty well-known like medical um, journal. And they actually did a study to see if there's evidence to support that an apple a day does keep the doctor away. And they did not find like very conclusive evidence for that, but they did find that a small fraction um, of U.S. adults who eat an apple a day do appear to have fewer prescription medications, you guys. And then the last thing I'll share that I came in or like Googled because of this article is I wanted to know where the origin at apple a day keeps the doctor away came from. Did you Google that? Yeah. And I read the study that you just talked about too. 
Yeah. It originated in Wales. It was in a publication in 1866. And the original rhyming format was eat an apple on going to bed and you'll keep the doctor from earning his bread. And then in the 19th and 20th century, it evolved to an apple a day, no doctor to pay. And an apple a day sends the doctor away. And then now the first time the common phrase that we use today was recorded in 1922. So now you know, you guys. All I kept thinking when I was reading through all that was like, gosh, meat and milk need to do a better job marketing ourselves. Like, where's our cute little slogan that's like, a steak a day keeps the doctor away. (laughs) Like, put that on a shirt. (laughs) Seriously. So I love that for the Apple producers. Good job on you guys for all those cute little sayings. All right, you guys, moving into our last and final article that you need to know this week titled, The Next Pandemic Could Spring from the U.S. Meat Supply. New Report Finds. A new report from Harvard Law School and New York University argues that the next global pandemic could originate from the U.S. meat supply. Quote, COVID has infected more than 100 million Americans and killed over a million of them. But the next pandemic may be far worse and might happen sooner than we think. End quote. Anne Lindler, one of the report's lead authors, said in a statement, the stakes are simply too high for the problem to be ignored. I want to start by saying I think the headline And even like the intro of this article were extremely misleading. Uh, They made it sound like I feel like I went into this thinking they were going to talk about beef or cattle or even like poultry and hogs they did touch on. But I felt like at the heart of this, this article was much more about like fur animals, not meat animals and um, imports of wild animals from other countries, as well as our globalized market that we have very little control over, like animals being brought into the country. So I feel like it was a little sensationalized to like kind of give, um, you know, animal ag here in the United States a bad rap. When in reality, I was like, you're not even really talking about animal ag. So I'm very overwhelmed, honestly, by this article, you guys. I don't even know where to start. Um, I wrote down our favorite phrase, which is fear mongering to the core. I mean, you said sensationalized, which I think is also a good way. But from the tone to the photos, any article that is covering this report, I think is definitely falling into the camp of a little bit of the extreme side, a little bit on the doom and gloom side. Um, I think a little bit of the instilling fear into the consumer side. I actually clicked on the report to read the report. And it is H-E-A-V-Y. You guys, it is heavy. It is over 150 pages. And like you said, it the quote says that it identifies 36 distinct types of consumer-facing animal markets and supply chains. And then they document the risks and the regulatory landscape surrounding each of them. 36 does not seem like a lot. You're kind of like, oh, okay, 36. They were covering like camel farming and alligator farming. They were over in the mink world. They were like you said, talking about wild importation I mean, it was insane what they were covering. And so essentially what this report did, which it is not a study, and I think that's what I my big picture takeaway is people will read this headline or any headline and see, let me go back up to the title, a new report from Harvard Law School in New York argues. People see the word report and they think it's a study. This was not a scientific study. What this did was cumulated basically all the freaking animals in the world, all the touch points we have, all the barrier enters, all the problems with them, the diseases, and then said like, we got a lot going on in the animal space. Here's the potential. We should be concerned about it. I mean, it was kind of bizarre. Yeah, it was. But I feel like she did what is like I'm finding so classic with the animal, like when people are kind of anti-animal ag, is like jumping all over the place, jumping from country to country, 
the fear mongering. I mean, she started it with like mentioning HIV and AIDS, Ebola, Zika, the pandemic flu and COVID-19, none of which came from farm animals, like not one. And so I was like, why did you throw you threw out all of these names and these diseases and these pandemics and things to start off with so much fear when in actuality, those all came from like wild animal sources? Yeah, so they did include, which I was surprised about, a couple of quotes from the opposition. Going back to the mink, you know, they're saying despite claims from an animal rights advocates, there is no significant threat to the general public from U.S. farmed mink. We unequivocally assert our commitment to the health and safety of our animals, our workforce and the communities at which we operate. Um, the National Chicken Council came out saying that according to CDC, the likelihood of spreading an avian disease to a human in the United States is extremely rare. Um, so I think that's what was like a little disheartening to me was again, there was no, I was clicking that link expecting to have kind of a more assessment done that was like, here are the common diseases that run in animals that carry, have been proven to carry over. Like I was looking for some tangible information and I felt like you said this was just spraying information about all the animals exist and then instilling fear that there could be a possibility of them giving us something instead of like, I guess, getting down to the granular level of like, okay, but what does that actually look like? So I think I think of one other time I've mentioned this on the podcast, maybe not that I heard actually from like a mink farmer. I don't know what they're called. Um, I actually heard him speak one time. He had had uh, suffered a really bad animal activist attack, costing his family like millions of dollars. Actually ended up, I think, going out of business. And so the mink part of this really like captivated me, I guess, and I started going into it. So they were really highlighting mink or the fur trade um, as being a potential source. But I thought that this quote was interesting, that uh, the industry worked with the federal government during the COVID pandemic to vaccinate 95% of the U.S. mink population starting in the summer of 2021, which was basically as soon as they could. The cost was entirely covered by the actual mink farmers, and uh, they are also helping fund research to avoid crossing over like zoonic diseases. So it's like, man, it feels like they're taking a lot of steps to actually avoid this happening. Like the way this article was written, it was kind of like as if nobody's doing anything. And I was like, seems like they're doing something. Well, so when you get into the report, that is one thing they had an issue with. I I could not, I made it through probably like 15 pages of 150 guys. And then I started to like, of actually reading word for word. And then I had to start like scanning and just scrolling and like picking up what stood out to me. But one of the things they talked about was that there is no single unified federal or state authority responsible for the prevention, detection and regulation of zoonotic disease. And so they really, I don't know, it's probably like 10 pages just on like regulatory oversight, looking at like federal level, state level, who's in charge of what. And they kind of really like gave it to all of them saying none of them are doing a good job. It varies again, kind of instilling fear around anyone who would take the time to read that to be like, yeah, there are these bodies, but none of them agree. It's all different. Just like lacing it in fear essentially. But I thought it was really interesting because again, I did not read all of it. And I guarantee you out of the 150 plus pages, 142 of them, I probably completely disagree with and think that they're more fear-based than any fact-based. But what I thought interesting at the end of it was their summary was essentially like we should survey each practice, all of these different ways we involve animals and then justify the risk they pose and kind of do an assessment on whether they're like necessary or needed or whether they should have more regulations. And that totally shocked me because I thought there would be a call to action for like 
ending all animal, you know, like what we're usually used to. And I'm like, I guess I kind of agree with their big picture takeaway, which is like, maybe we should assess if camel farming is needed. Maybe we should assess if, you know, smuggling parrots in is like something we should start like paying attention to and putting laws on wild. I mean, I was very confused by the wild importation animal conversation, but I thought that was actually like a very level-headed like conclusion. And I like still a little shocked by it. I'm like, where, where is the call to action that I'm used to? Like, where is it buried at? So I have like two more points, but you brought up the wild animals. This uh, number shocked me. We import 220 million live wild animals into the United States every single year for people to have as pets. And while there is regulation on bringing in cats and dogs, there is very little regulation on bringing in wild animals. And so I was, I personally kind of left with that similar, like, yes, like, where is the oversight on that? These wild animals that are being like moved, shipped across the globe all the time. That was my big takeaway from the wild animal side of things. I just don't get like, what are we importing and what are we doing with them? Like, where are those going? Uh, The last point I want to bring up this, there was one other quote that really rubbed me the wrong way. And there, it was that there's virtually no regulation on on on-farm raising of animals. I had to laugh at that. I'm like, we get inspected by the FDA, the USDA. Like, I, I don't know. OSHA can come out. Like there is so many people checking up on us that I really got frustrated with that. And then they talked about how um, there's limited regulation in slaughterhouses and how the regulations were trying to deregulate slaughterhouses. And I kind of was like, okay, but we want more packer. Like we don't want to be monopolized or uh, oligopol. How would you say that? Oligopolized by the big four. So we do want more processing centers. So like, I was like, that doesn't mean we're deregulating them. I, that really confused me that they went down that path at all. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I had those pulled out to talk about and just didn't get to them. But I do think it was a huge misrepresentation and goes to why we do this podcast, right? Is like there's nuance in statements and a lot of people take the statement for as is period, no further discussion. And it's like, you have to consider the ripple effects or the potential, you know, flip side of the coin of what that means. And so I don't know. I mean, we'll link this. I'll actually link the report for you guys. So you could look into it or maybe understand it better. I feel like this was like, a lot of information to try and review and give our opinions on in like, you know, the 15 minutes we have you guys. Um, But I do see the potential that uh, certain organizations could amplify this report. So we wanted to cover it and give you guys kind of like a baseline for it, because I am concerned that it may be coming, you know, in the news, maybe in a little bit heavier way, twisted, presented in different lights. And so you guys will at least know, you know, the source of like where to go to for like some information if you need to. Yeah. The final thing I'll say is I think we're going to be seeing more big things like this because they mentioned at the end of this, the reason they're talking about it now is because the farm bill and that was similar Mm -hmm. to, you know, sugar. So I think we're going to continue seeing these really mainstream things that people are trying to get attention because they want their bill passed or like something not passed for the farm bill. And so it's just putting a lot of attention on, you know, food production, subsidies, just just everything across the board in agriculture that has to do with the farm bill. So um, we're trying to keep, I feel like our fingers on that pulse of like, you know, who's trying to sneak in what, what are people trying to do um, and how will it affect all of us? Who's trying to sidle in something? Sidle it in. There you go. You got it. I got it in one point, Natalie. All right, you guys, that wraps up our topics for today. Time to get into our interview with Ben Spell, the founder of Good Ranchers. (laughs) 
All right. Today's interview, we have Ben Spell from Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers was founded by Ben and his wife, Corley, as a result of their search for honest and quality food to feed their growing family. As CEO, Ben has an inspiring story that led him from a music and worship pastor at two churches in Houston to a successful entrepreneur in the direct-to-consumer beef business. After his encounter with unethical and questionable questionable business practices in the meat industry, Ben saw an opportunity. He realized there was a need for a company that would provide top quality American meat with complete transparency and integrity. From that need, Good Ranchers was born. In 2018, Ben started traveling the country to connect with local farms and ranches. He even began selling the meat himself at farmers markets and pop-up shops. Ben's hard work paid off as Good Ranchers now supplies meat throughout the United States and supports countless American farms and ranches and has even contributed significantly to the fight against hunger in America. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Well, we have a lot to talk with you about today, so we're going to dive right into it. What made you go from being a pastor to a meat entrepreneur? Okay, we are getting right into it. Working at a church, um, which I... It's kind of funny. I never really planned on being in like full-time ministry. It just kind of happened. And, um, and I didn't like my sole income coming from tithe payers. So I started praying and asking God to kind of give me, um, this wasn't a term then, but it's a term now. But um, what I was essentially asking for was like a side hustle. What can I do on the side to make, to, to supplement my income or to, to ultimately maybe even make it to where I don't have to take a salary from the church. And uh, uh, ironically enough, over probably a year, maybe a year and a half or so, um, I kept having this idea of a meat company, which is so outlandish because I knew nothing about, I knew nothing about agriculture or the, the meat industry. And I just immediately think, oh, that would be a good idea for someone else. I remember telling my wife, uh, Corley at the time, like, you know, somebody should do this, 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 and this. And if, and, um, and, uh, and, and we just kind of talked about it and moved on because that somebody was never me. And about every three or four months, it would pop back into my head and I would start thinking. I even, and at one point, I even kind of like wrote out some like uh, somewhat of a business plan of, of kind of what it could be. But then I thought it, it, it was just never me. And um, one morning I was getting ready and this was probably, again, somewhere between a year and a year and a half of every few months of having this idea. Um, it was like light bulb. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was really, it was like, I just, I heard God's voice loud and clear. And cause I was thinking about it again. And, um, and I just heard his voice like loud and clear in my head say, you do it. And it was kind of like, Hey dummy, I'm, <laughs> I've been, <laughs> you're asking for something and I'm telling you what to do. Go do it. Our first year. And when we launched in yeah, 2018, when we, when we started our first year, we did over 5 million in sales which is pretty unheard of for especially, again, no, no real business um, acumen or background and no meat knowledge at all. And who we were when we started in 2018 versus who we are now is, I mean, night and day. Because uh, when we started, it was, it was me selling meat in a parking lot out of the back of a truck in Waco, Texas. And, I was, and it was the worst meat you could ever buy. Um, <laughs> honest, honestly, I didn't, but I didn't know. Like, um, thankfully, I I didn't stay there and I started learning and asking questions and, um, and about 20, about a year and a half into it, um, is when I learned about the country of origin labeling law. And I realized that everything that we had been buying was actually coming from Mexico and then doing a little research, 
we found out that there's no country of origin labeling law for beef and for pork in the U.S. because it was repealed. That law was repealed in 2015. We went into 2020. Uh, we drew a line in the sand and we said, uh, as a as a company, as a business, we're not going to sell anything unless it's born, raised, and harvested. Um, in the U.S. because we want to support American agriculture. We want to sort of support American farms. And that's really where good ranchers of what it is now started taking taking shape and form. That is actually the second time I have heard your origin story. We got to hear it when we first had our business meeting with you about, you know, just learning more about Discover um, from your guys' end and us learning more about good ranchers and seeing if, you know, we would be a good fit. And it is still <clears throat> as interesting um, and unique and I think really empowering to hear your origin story for a second time as it is a first time. So thank you for sharing that because I think we have a lot of listeners who either one buy from Good Ranchers um, or two are thinking about it. Um, and I think it's always really fascinating um, and honestly really inspiring too for entrepreneurs listening to hear how people get started. In that business meeting uh, that we had when we first met, one of the things that really stood out to Tara and I most was your guys' passion for supporting U.S. farmers and ranchers. I think that is something that is at the core of Good Ranchers um, and really, mm -hmm. truly integrated into your guys' ethos and mission. So let's maybe talk about COOL a little bit in depth because sure. I know that is um, something that's very important to you guys, something you love to bring awareness around. And we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but not a ton. So maybe let's start with why you guys believe so strongly in supporting U.S. farmers and ranchers, and then we can kind of see where that conversation takes us. It's, it's, it's two parts. We definitely want to support American farms and ranches, but we also believe that people have the right to know the fork that you use to eat the steak has to say made in China, but the steak that you put in your body um, doesn't have to say where it, it, it was made or where it comes from. Like you like your clothes have country of origin label on them. Your coffee cup, your every toy in my kid's room has says what country it was made from. Um, but beef and pork, um, two of the main proteins in the grocery store, we we don't have to to label that. I think that people have the right to know where what they're eating, what they're putting in their body, and what's in it. Um, and then and and I think that not having that country of origin label and law, it undermines um, the U.S. agriculture community. It undermines um, the the ranches, um, the farmers and ranches that are, it costs more money to raise beef in the U.S. than it does in, in third world countries. It's plain and simple. And the quality is higher. It's also... Um, complicated, right? <laughs> Which is probably one of the reasons why we haven't ever very, talk, talked about it in depth yeah, on this podcast very. is, um, like you mentioned, the importation, exportation, the different prices, um, the different places we're importing from. There's a um, the lot that goes into the U.S. supply chain that um, you know makes it complicated from our end as producers, and then on the opposite end, you know, from the consumers, like you said, um, that label and. You know, that's something that Tara and I get into quite a bit is um, the greenwashing of labeling and the lack of transparency anymore and kind of how we've gotten off a little bit off kilter as a society when it comes to labeling for our food. So I always, every podcast I go on, always really stand for if you truly want to support U.S. beef and know for sure you are um, 
best option is, you know, direct to consumer. Cause I'm a little bit of a skeptic in saying, I don't th- know if cool will ever get past or at least not anytime soon. And so I think if you, you know, one of the options to go around cool, one of the, the great things about good ranchers is those people who do want to know for sure you have that direct to consumer option. I'm hopeful uh, and seeing a lot of things in the industry. I'm, I'm also a relentless optim- optimist, <laughs> so I could just this could be just toxic positivity spewing out of me. But I'm hopeful that it's that that it can that it can come back and that it will come back. It's, it's funny because it, it got repealed in 2015. I mean, eight years ago, going on almost going on a decade. Um, but people are really just now in the last few years really starting to hear about it. At the same time, maybe I am also uh, like toxic positivity over here, but I feel like the pendulum is swinging kind of like what you said, like 2015 was a very different place we were in. And now here in 2023, I think, you know, post pandemic, people do care more about where their food came from. They care like people are asking for country of origin labels on their meat. Like I think there is much more conversation around it from a consumer side than there was in 2015. And so kind of going on that thread of like how much time has passed, one of the things that I think is really cool about Good Ranchers that's kind of unique to you guys, and we can kind of dive into it, that you guys lock in your prices when you're a part of a subscription. So looking into the future of things, like you can know where your meat's coming from, you can know the the price you're getting it at, like you have some security there as far as, you know, no matter what's changing or the, the crazy world we live in, like you are locking in your meat for, you know, the next year something a lot of people don't think about when it comes to uh, buying beef, especially, you know, chicken, it's a, it's a six week life cycle from, from hatch to harvest. Like that's, you know, it, you're turning that around really, really, really quick. Um, but beef, you're talking about two years from, from birth to harvest um, on average. And um, so what's happening today in the, in to beef prices and, um, is the the effect of um, two years ago of of what was happening several years ago, and most people and people just don't really think about that. Which means um, what's happening right now is going to affect next next year and um, you know the next twelve, eighteen, twenty four months. We did this last year. Um, where we started saying, Hey, we'll lock in your subscribe and we'll lock your price in for two years. And we are able to, because we are, we do work closely with, with producers. Um, and, uh, we are able to look at and forecast, okay, what's coming next year. What's coming, what's coming down the road, the heart behind good ranchers. When Corlin and I really started sitting down and, and saying, okay, are we really going to do this? Um, we wanted to be able to, um, provide an amazing quality um, with transparency, but also um, we want to be able to supply families. And we have four kids and um, we wanted to be able to make dinner at home possible, accessible and quality dinner at home um, and available um, to as many families as we can. And meat is the, is the center of the plate. And it's the one thing that you can go to the grocery store and at certain times you're going to look at the prices and you're going to go, Oh no, I'm not paying that. And, and then go find something else. Um, so 
we thought it was really important to let's at least let's not have this fluctuation every time the market goes goes up um it, which happens seasonally if you look around go try to buy a ribeye at the fourth of july i mean they're, <laughs> they're they're twice the price in the grocery store um around your grilling holidays go try to buy tenderloin during the, in the christmas time and it's going to be uh, um, in some places going to be close to 50 dollars a pound in the grocery store we want to try our best to um, have a consistent pricing model versus the up and down the ups and flows of the kind of craziness that the beef and meat world has has been the, since covid i mean it's just been a roller coaster yeah, it has been. Uh, grocery store prices are something that comes up, you know, so often with inflation right now. I mean, it is wild. I know personally, I'm like, my grocery store bill has doubled in the last couple of years and our eating has not changed. You know, I've not added any more children. We are a family of four and our grocery bill is, it feels like, a, you know, like a car payment every month. Um, so yeah, it is kind of, it is wild what's happened since the pandemic with our food prices. And I do think that that offering you guys have that price lock-in, like you said, I think it might be an, a little bit of an overlooked offering for people. Cause I don't, like you said, I just don't think they think about the life cycle of the cattle, the way you mentioned it. Um, and so with prices being where they are, I guess I'm the skeptic of the three of us, but, um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, a lot of the nations been going through severe droughts the last couple of years, which is one of the largest uh, reasons that we're having, you know, these decreased in the animals and kind of this supply and demand of where we're at in the marketplace right now. And so again, thinking that, you know, what we're at now dictates where we'll be in a couple of years. I don't know if meat prices are going to be coming down quite drastically. And so I do believe for anyone listening that, you know, shops at the grocery store or shops, you know, doesn't, isn't in, in ag and producing themselves with their own beef. Um, if you have the means right now to lock in prices for beef, if your family eats beef and it's important to your family that you continue to eat beef, um, I think it's really amazing that you guys offer that price lock in. Like you said, um, with the droughts and like they're going, prices are going to go up next year. It's inevitable. Like there's, they're not coming down anytime soon, if ever. So you're right. And we, I don't know that we do a good enough job of actually pushing uh, the, how good of a, uh, of, of a deal it is. The other thing you touched on there that I thought you were going to mention and you didn't. So I want to bring it up because it's another thing that I really love about good ranchers. You know, you were talking about how it's so important for you guys to feed a family um, and give back essentially. And a really awesome thing you guys do is donate meals for box prestiges. Can you, I mean, we talk a little bit about it on our plug, but um, I think this is a really good opportunity for you to kind of dive a little bit more into that. I was praying one morning and I asked God, like, cause we had definitely already went all in saying we were going to do this, but we hadn't actually um, launched a first sell, I guess uh, if you would call it. And um, uh, I was praying, I was asking God, how are we going to get, how are we going to get, favor like with with vendors with suppliers with cities and permits and and um contracts and and all, and all this stuff and and um and he, pretty much immediately after i asked that question um i just felt like the word give um was just resonating and and um so um i thought okay if we're going to go into these cities if, or if i'm going to go into a city and i'm going to uh, set up a pop-up shop and I'm going to s- sell meat. 
um, how can I give back to that community? So since we were selling food, I thought, you know what, we'll, we'll I'll make, I'll, I'll partner with a local food bank. We'll make it, uh, we'll make the, um, that location, a, a food drive while I'm there, um, advertising on the radio, advertising on Facebook, telling people, Hey, come and buy meat. Um, but also bring non-perishable food items and we'll give you a discount on your, on your meat. Um, and then we'll donate all of the non-perishable food items to, um, the, the food, like either the food pantry or the food bank in the community. But a really, a, a, a massive part of our story that we don't really ever tell. I had the idea of, I'm going to come back to Houston and I'm going to do this with six locations. I'm going to circle the city. We're going to buy radio on the, the, the biggest country stations, the biggest rock stations. But um, I, we got everything set up, talked to, um, we had five different malls, five or six different malls. I, I called my brothers and my cousins and friends, and we had everything to set up five locations. I had um, meat on every truck, bought on credit, maxed out credit cards, all the things. We'd had all the permits, everything that we had needed to go. And two days before we opened, the health, uh, the health department of the city of Houston called me and said, Hey, Mr. Spell, we see that you're trying to open up five pop-up shops this weekend. Um, and we know that we, I know that you talked to so-and-so and and they said that, you know, that, um, that this wouldn't be an issue, but it actually is a massive issue. The city of Houston doesn't allow what you're doing. It's called peddling and you can't just set up and sell food in parking lots. Um, and I was like, well, no, but we have contracts with these malls and we have permission and we have this and we, and there's like, he's like, he's like, we don't allow it. And if we allow it for you, we would have, we would have to allow it for everybody. And we'll have people selling tomatoes and watermelons and vegetables. And <laughs> and he's like, we're, um, and I am devastated. And, uh, I just remember hanging up the phone and having that just sinking feeling in my gut of like, we're going to lose everything here. Cause like the, the city, like all of our money is in, is, invested in this what are we going to do and i go and i tell corley what what he just what the health inspector just said and she said well did you tell him about the food drive and i'm thinking no um (laughs) he doesn't care about the food drive like um he said we can't do it and she's like call him back and tell him tell him about the food drive and i said hey we're actually partnering with the houston food bank and and um uh, all of our locations are a food drive and we're, we're raising awareness for hunger and a portion of our proceeds go back are, are going directly to the Houston food bank. Um, is, and he goes, Oh, well, if you, why didn't you say that in the first place? He's like, I'll approve it. <laughs> There's been so many times when you've told your story where I've gotten goosebumps during this interview. Like it is just so crazy to hear about. And I think, uh, one thing that you didn't mention, or maybe you were going to, sorry, I kind of cut you off and I didn't mean to is in January, you guys crossed 1 million meals donated, which is yeah. absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yes. And, and, in that moment, again, that was 2018. That's really when it hit us like the, the giving, um, side of what we do, because again, if we wouldn't have made that decision to give before we ever decided to open up, um, there wouldn't be a good ranchers like period, like, because if we wouldn't have already been with the Houston food bank and had that, all of that ready to go, um, the health department would have never let us open up, never let us sell. And then, and when, and then 
um, when we opened up those two days later, uh, we had five, I can't remember if it was five or six, but let's just call it five, five locations. And every truck sold out in two days. We thought we had enough. We thought we had enough for a week. Every truck sold out in two days. Um, and that's really like, that's what launched good ranchers. That's what gave us like the, that kind of gave us some, a little bit more buying power, a little bit more, um, credibility in, in the industry. So once we launched online and we got rid of the trucks, um, in 2021, we still definitely kept it a part of our ethos that every, every purchase online, we still give back to food banks. We give a monetary donation for every box, um, that equates to about 10 meals, um, for every purchase. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. This was extremely interesting, valuable. Um, you know, we've been sharing about you guys on the podcast for several months now. So it's kind of uh, great to put a face with the company for all of our listeners or a voice, I guess, with the companies for um, all of our listeners and just hearing your origin story and just the story of Good Ranchers. So thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. And I just want to say that through the conversation, I do feel like hopefully the listeners picked up on as well is that I do think that you guys have a lot of slogans and statements, but they're not just that to your operation. They really are what you guys stand for. I really do think you are, um, you know, making American farm stronger again, and you're restoring it to the American table. And you guys really stand for that community, that quality and that change. And so um, thank you for all the good work that Good Ranchers is doing. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're um, we're happy to be a part of you guys' uh, show, and we can talk meat anytime. <laughs> all right, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. That's all we have for you this week, and we will see you next week. 